traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Are you concerned about equality and fair treatment for African-Americans? Do you believe in a future where our communities are safe from both crime and over-policing? President Biden's administration is making major decisions, and we need your voice to be heard. The proposed ban on menthol cigarettes is in its final stages of approval, and black and brown law enforcement executives have said it could have dire unintended consequences for African-Americans. The clock is ticking. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414 and ask him to stop this proposed menthol rule. The ban on menthol could lead to an illicit market and increased crime in our communities. Call President Biden and demand that he halt the ban on menthol until there's a review of the investigative findings. Let's make sure that over-policing and racial profiling come to an end. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414. Tell him to stop targeting African-Americans with a menthol ban. Time is running out. This message is paid for by Alliance for Fair and Equitable Policy. The views expressed in the following program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of Saga 960 AM or its management. Richard! Richard! Oh, are we on? Welcome to the Richard Serrett Show on News Talk Saga 960 AM. All right, welcome to News and Notes from the Underground for Monday, July the 12th. And I actually, I think I'm going to start time stamping each and every program from here on in. Monday, July 12th. The, uh, the chronology, the timeline, it might come in handy, uh, you know, at the inquest. I'm not sure what that means exactly, but I feel like I've, I've got the, the sword of Damocles hanging over my neck. I'll tell you why. I had Dr. Peter Bregan on this program last week. When was that, Brandon? Thursday, maybe? Wednesday, Thursday? He's the uh, the Harvard-trained psychiatrist, a medical doctor. And he and his wife just wrote a book, over 600 pages, filled with documents and citations. Uh, the book is called COVID-19 and the Global Predators. We are the prey. And he uncovered documents from 2015 and 2016, which, to my mind, pretty much nails shut the case in terms of the origin of the SARS-CoV-2 virus and the connection between the Wuhan Virology Lab and the Bat Lady and Dr. Fauci and the NIH and Bill Gates and Klaus Schwab from the World Economic Forum. So that caused a bit of a shite storm. And so I thought more people need to hear this. So I had Dr. Bregan on my Sunday night show for the full two hours, and that caused another shite storm. So I keep pushing my luck, and that's okay. I'm not stopping now. Uh, and uh, tomorrow, tomorrow, get a load of this. We have the inventor of the mRNA vaccine, Dr. Robert Malone himself, the inventor of the mRNA vaccine. This ought to be interesting. He's been very outspoken about the way this technology, this medical device, let's call it, has been rolled out. He's been very outspoken about the suppression uh, of any and all uh, treatments and um, like ivermectin. Again, this is the guy who invented the mRNA vaccine. You know, not some kook, right? Someone who should be taken seriously. 
And uh, and by the way, Wikipedia tried to erase his name and any connection he had to the development of the mRNA vaccine. But too bad. There's something called the Wayback Machine, and you can go back and find the original Wikipedia entries clearly listing Dr. Malone as the inventor. So too bad, Winston Smith, you were busted. Dr. Robert Malone, our feature guest uh, spot tomorrow after 5 p.m. Don't miss it. And we'll see how it plays out after that show. Uh, Again, I'm listed day to day, I think, at this point. Anyway, what are you going to do? I've got to deliver these goods. Uh, Before we get rolling with today's edition of Radio Free Canada, a few words about slain Toronto police officer Jeffrey Northrup. He was remembered today as an amicable, gentle giant at his uh, funeral. A loving husband, father of three teenagers, a dedicated member of the Brampton community. He was involved in a lot of things. Uh, The Scouts, lacrosse, even volunteered with the Special Olympics. And uh, investigators say Northrop was killed in a deliberate act last week while responding to a report of a robbery in a parking lot beneath Toronto City Hall. And he died after being struck by a vehicle. There's a 31 year old man has been charged with first degree murder in the case. Uh, Again, our condolences to Northrop's family, friends and colleagues. Is uh, Canada the free headed off the rails and entering totalitarian rule? That's the subject of a recent essay published by a conservative think tank. And the author looked at parallels between Canada today and Hitler's Germany and concluded that, in fact, yes, we are goose stepping our way towards authoritarianism. That's not not news to many of you. In the, uh, the article, the author examined things like the control of the press and forced rules of speech and widespread cancel culture, all of which happened in Nazi Germany beginning in the 1930s. Now, here's the irony. The author of this essay on totalitarianism in Canada had to use a pseudonym when writing the piece for fear of reprisals at his place of work. And in other words, think about it. He had to change his name in order to write about totalitarianism in Canada. That's just too rich. Uh, So he's not available to come on. Uh, But another author at this think tank called the Frontier Center for Public Policy, Rodney Clifton, will be here. He's also a professor emeritus at the University of Manitoba. Uh, Mondays also mean a visit from Dr. Patrick Phillips. He practices family medicine, and also he's an ER physician up in the small community of Englehart, Ontario, and uh, he'll be here to discuss. This was a recent study in the journal called Vaccines, pretty reputable, pretty credible journal, and uh, in, this, in this recent piece, which was based on the data from uh, Holland's, I guess, Vaccine Adverse Reaction Database, the, the study concluded that for every three lives saved by COVID vaccines, we have to suffer two vaccine-inflicted deaths. So, you know, do the cost-benefit on that. Anyway, after extreme pressure, that peer-reviewed article has been retracted. Uh, after, I believe, something like six or at least six editors, at least six editors with the uh, the journal resigned in anger. So we'll uh, revisit that study and find out what went wrong, uh, what, what it got wrong, and perhaps what, if anything, it got right. Dr. Patrick Phillips will join us a little later this hour. Now, I like Rebel News. I like how they upset Apple carts. 
I like uh, how they afflict the comfortable, namely the ruling class in this country, and give comfort to the afflicted. And one of the reporters who covers Western Canada, Drea Humphrey, on Thursday, uh, she attended an event um, where the prime minister was there along with the British Columbia uh, premier. And she tried to ask this trust fund brat, prime minister gropey blackface, an actual question. You know, do her job as an actual journalist in this country, not not a, a silly question about his socks or his favorite ice cream. And uh, she got grabbed and tossed aside by one of Trudeau's thugs, a journalist doing her job. You know, this just reverts back to our, uh, our upcoming conversation on totalitarianism in Canada. Anyway, she'll join us an hour or two to explain what happened. And uh, then to lighten the mood... <laughs> Light in the mood. We're going to talk with the Toronto Sun's crime reporter, Brad Hunter. His latest book is a collection of cold cases, true crime. It's called Cold-Blooded Murder, Shocking True Stories of Killers and Psychopaths. Yeah, that should be a lot of laughs. Uh, there you go. Hey, Lou, the number one buyer of books is women and the number one genre, true crime. What does that tell you? Well, it tells you that the victims of crime are interested perhaps in finding ways to protect themselves and take a defensive strategy around crime. I mean, you know, I look at it and with my daughter, Madeline, saying, you know, you got to have your head on a swivel all the time because uh, they're preyed upon. Women are preyed upon. Right. Although let's be uh, the, the number one. I mean, men uh, by a wide margin are the victims of murder. Yeah, but yes. uh, usually it's men associating with violent companions. Mm -hmm. Right. Whereas That's true. I think, you know, I, whereas I think in some cases, not all cases, you know, there's random violence against women. You know, if you want to th talk about sexual assault as a violent act. Sure, um, sure. And there's also, you know, uh, a lot of, I guess, by association. So not a total stranger, but somebody in the crowd that you may be running in as a woman. Right. So right. I, I, I look, I say, yeah, why are they readers? Well, I, some would say they're more intelligent. Right. Women read more than men because Absolutely they have. They do. Yeah, they have. Uh, more intelligence and want more. Plus they're into the narrative telling of stories. And, um, you know, why are they looking at true crime? I would say because they're looking for a way out in case they get trapped in that alleyway and are looking for an exit, right? I always say, uh, you know, take a good judo, jujitsu uh, class and, you know, be able to fight your way out of that alley. Sure. I, I, think, I think women should be allowed to carry bear spray. Uh, which are, they're not, as far as I know. Uh, and also, you know, I'm a big fan of concealed carry. Uh, you know that, that in, um, in, I think it was Dade County in Florida, they had a, a horrible situation down there. There was a serial rapist uh, down there. And so what they started doing was giving uh, women instruction at the gun range, and they passed some concealed carry laws. And uh, the, uh, the amount of uh, sexual assaults and rapes just dropped like precipitously. It was incredible. Yeah, I, I think that, you know, if you're if you look at your basic profile of a criminal, uh, they're cowards. Right. And if you harden your perimeter, you'll find that they'll look for something softer. So if they think that more of their target group 
are carrying a concealed weapon or even an open carry weapon, right. they're going to look for somebody else to assault or hassle with, right? Right. That's and, why you know, that's why most mass shootings take place in gun-free zones. Yeah. And, you know, you were talking about bear spray. You know, you can always buy wasp spray. I don't know oh, if you've ever seen that stuff. I have. But man, it's got a good trajectory because they don't want you near the nest when you're giving them some chemical death. And uh, it's sticky. It's a foam that is very sticky. So I don't know about you, but I wouldn't want a chemical spray coming my way, especially towards my face that would stick there and not, you know, just easily come off like water or some other liquid, right? There you go, wasp spray, although they tend to come in large cans. So I don't know if they can fit that in your clutch, you know, your handbag, but uh, well, something to think prepared, about. Right? I mean, Always. yeah. Like or a good boy scout. You got to go to, you know, a bigger carry, you know, a bigger bag. <laughs> there you go. Boys, like a good boy scout. And you were a good boy scout. What was your troop again? Troop one, number one. We are number one. We are number one. Are you concerned about equality and fair treatment for African-Americans? Do you believe in a future where our communities are safe from both crime and over-policing? President Biden's administration is making major decisions, and we need your voice to be heard. The proposed ban on menthol cigarettes is in its final stages of approval, and black and brown law enforcement executives have said it could have dire unintended consequences for African-Americans. The clock is ticking. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414 and ask him to stop this proposed menthol rule. The ban on menthol could lead to an illicit market and increased crime in our communities. Call President Biden and demand that he halt the ban on menthol until there's a review of the investigative findings. Let's make sure that over-policing and racial profiling come to an end. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414. Tell him to stop targeting African-Americans with a menthol ban. Time is running out. This message is paid for by Alliance for Fair and Equitable Policy. You are number one. And uh, we'll talk again at five o'clock, my friend. Can't wait, Richard. Happy capitalism. Happy capitalism. All right. When we come back, a compelling article published on the website of a Canadian conservative think tank lays out a pretty compelling argument. Canada is rapidly descending into totalitarian rule. Again, the irony, the author had to assume a pseudonym for fear of reprisals after having published the article. So we'll be joined by another author at that think tank, the Frontier Center for Public Policy. He joins me in three minutes. We're back as the Richard Serrett Show continues on News Talk Saga 960 AM. Back in June, an article posted on the Frontier Center for Public Policy titled Historical Parallels is Canada becoming a totalitarian state? Ironically, the article was written under a pseudonym to protect the author from possible persecution. Here to discuss further is a professor emeritus of sociology of education at the University of Manitoba. He is also an author at the Frontier Center for Public Policy, Rodney Clifton. Rodney, welcome. How are you? I'm fine. Thank you very much. Isn't that ironic that the person who wrote this had to write it under a pseudonym, an article about totalitarianism, for fear that here in Canada he would be perhaps persecuted. Uh, yes, he was afraid that his business would, uh, he would lose business and money as a result of his views on some social policies that should be open for debate in our country. Let me just read the foreword here to the article. This essay spells out what many people have alluded to, that Canadians are losing their freedom, 
and that this once prosperous and proud country is on the brink of becoming a statist mock democracy where people live in fear of their government and of fellow citizens who may denounce them for their views. 20 years ago, Rodney, could you have in your worst nightmare ever imagined writing an article about totalitarianism coming to Canada? Uh, no, I was teaching at the university then, at the University of Manitoba, and uh, the discussions were pretty free, though they've become they've become more restrictive since the 1960s. But there were still open debates about certain things, and now uh, there are issues that you can barely talk about. Um, you have to go into quiet corners and coffee with your friends to talk about them at universities. The article looks at three areas in which Canada today parallels totalitarianism regimes such as Hitler's Germany, control of free press, enforcement of speech codes, and the prevalence of cancel culture. Let's let's look at the control of free press first of all. Of course, Nazi Germany, they had their own newspaper, People's Observer. How does that compare to what's happening? And also Nazi Germany, of course, they expanded that. They, they, they bought out other newspapers or they imposed censorship. How does that compare to today's liberal government in Canada? Well, the Liberal government is propping up uh, newspapers across our country, including the Winnipeg Free Press, which is our local newspaper. And uh, since they've been doing that, they've been constraining uh, conservative voices in that in that newspaper. In fact, the uh, Winnipeg Free Press had um, an one of the edit- editors had written an article that attacked myself and Jaime Rubenstein for an article that we wrote in the National Post in uh, 2015 uh, in response to the Truth and Reconciliation Commission and they named us by name and attacked us and they wouldn't take a response from us as um, as a countervailing force to, to be dealt with. So they were controlling essentially the narrative that's going to be uh, presented to people. And I think that's quite common across the country. If you talk to Jordan Peterson, if you talk to uh, Lindsay Shepard, if you talk to other people that have had this kind of experience, Barbara Kay, um, you will get the same message that newspapers are becoming more controlling and more uh, liberal in their orientation. And they're getting money from the federal government to become the national pervaders of, of knowledge and information. Uh, Bill C-10, of course, didn't pass the Senate before the House adjourned for the summer, but if the Liberals come back and win the next election, and right now the polls seem to indicate that they will, Bill C-10 will likely be resurrected, along with something perhaps even more odious, Bill C-36. Talk to me about your concerns with those two pieces of proposed legislation. Well, they're going to constrain in terms of using uh, pronouns for people that somebody, that um, Jordan Peterson was concerned about three or four years ago. Uh, in the classroom, in his classroom, of being able to say that if you see a woman in front of you, the pronoun, the proper pronoun is she, and not they, or some other variation. And if you see a man, the proper pronoun is he. Uh, that's going to make it even more difficult to have a free discussion about a whole bunch, a whole bunch of things. So they're going to be able to define. Now we've got. Uh, practically a universal definition of what 
constitutes uh, uh, the proper response to uh, the COVID epidemic, that everybody should get um, vaccinated and that uh, everyone should wear masks and social distancing. But there's no evidence to support that masks make any difference, especially if people keep putting them on and off without changing them or washing them. Um, we got constraint in terms of talking about genocide with the Aboriginal people who went to residential schools. We've got discussions about whether the graves that were really perished graves, not residential school graves, um, that were perished graves, whether they included the bodies of hundreds of kids that were murdered or died of malnutrition or whatever in residential schools and there's no evidence that this this is this is the case and is becoming increasingly difficult for people to engage in this kind of discussion. Rodney, we'll take a quick time out, come back and uh, continue to discuss the historical parallels. Is Canada becoming a totalitarian state? Back with more in a minute. Stay with us. Let's get back at it on Newstalk Saga 960 AM. It's the Richard Serrett Show. Rodney Clifton stays with us, a professor emeritus of sociology of education at the University of Manitoba and an author at the Frontier Centre for Public Policy. Tell us a little bit about the FCPP, Rodney. It's a libertarian conservative think tank that's situated in Winnipeg with offices in Calgary and Regina. And it's been in existence from 1997. And and it's been pushing to have a fair and equitable discussion of a whole bunch of, of policies, in educational policies, climate policies, Aboriginal policies. They've done a lot on Aboriginal issues over the last 25 years and um, on a variety of other things, cities, um, uh, farms, um, uh, the sustainability of the environment, all kinds of things. Much of what is written at the Frontier Centre obviously counters the sort of the official narrative of the Liberal government and progressive governments across the country. We were talking earlier about uh, the control of the press and how that parallels Nazi Germany. Do you think that the Frontier Centre for Public Policy would survive were Bill C-10 and Bill C-36 enacted into law? That would be, I think, a, a problem because they are... Pushing the frontier, as the name implies, on social policies in Canada, particularly for the West, where there's more tolerance for the kind of policies that the Frontier Centre pushes, of course. But um, it would it would be a problem. It, we've known about uh, various think tanks that have been. Uh, uh, adjudicated by the the uh, revenue agency and people have thought that the reason that they were picked for that is not because of uh, problems with their financing or or the way the money is being expended but in terms of uh, their position on particular issues that they're not sympathetic to the to the general um, orientation of the government and uh, its agencies in other words, the government has weaponized the Canada Revenue Agency to go after its political enemies. Uh, that's a very stark way of putting it. I think that's I think that's absolutely true. Yeah. 
Let's talk a little bit about the prevalence of cancel culture, which is another sort of hallmark of a totalitarian state. So in Nazi Germany, as the article points out, Jews and politically unreliable civil servants, employees were excluded from many state services. Uh, the Nazis purged around 4,000 ideological, ideologically non-conformist scientists, 15 to 20% of all scientists in the country. What's happening along similar lines here in Canada? Uh, we're going down the same um, rocky road. Uh, just as an example, a few year, a couple of years ago, I was asked to give a presentation at the faculty club at the University of Winnipeg um, by a fellow that I know who's a historian there and I was going to talk about the names of the residential schools because uh, a group of us had been working on a book on uh, residential schools and and we've published it with the Frontier Center it's called From Truth Comes Reconciliation and interesting point about the names of the schools is about 40% of the schools had Aboriginal names which is greater than the number of schools that had saints' names, which goes against the narrative that this, these were inst- institutions of genocide in which they tried to, to uh, mainly religious people, but the government also uh, ran uh, 20% of the schools, um, tried to, ex- to forbid uh, children from speaking their own language and carrying on with their culture. If they were doing that, why would they name the schools Old Sun, Crowfoot, Assiniboine, um, Poundmaker, and those kinds of Aboriginal names? Now, our country's full of uh, Aboriginal names. <laughs> Ottawa, Canada, Winnipeg, Manitoba, Saskatchewan, Saskatoon are all Aboriginal names. So it's not, but it's not unknown that Aboriginal names would be used, but, but you know, to say that the schools were completely oblivion, oblivious to the uh, culture of the people is stretching that point a little bit too far. All right, we'll take another time out, come back with Rodney Clifton, Professor Emeritus of Sociology at the University of Manitoba. Back with more in a moment. You're listening to The Richard Serrett Show on Newstalk Saga, 960 AM. Hey, Richard Serrett here, and I'm here with Dr. Cass Ingram, the author of 30 books on natural healing. Cass, you and I have known each other for more than 25 years. I think of you as Dr. Oregano, and I know you're wild about wild oregano and the oregano P73 juice, but it's different than the oregano oil. How? Hey, when I was in the mountains, the village chief said, look, we don't use oregano oil. We use the juice, and he pulls out these pop bottles he made in his backyard, and they're using it for heart disease, cancer, and bronchitis as well as diabetes, and he's claiming it works. Well, for 20 years I've been using it. It does the job. Thanks, Cass. Oregano P73 juice from North American Urban Spice, available at health food stores across the GTA. You can order online at oregano.com. That's O-R-E-G-A-N-O-L. 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 Oregano juice from oregano.com. 
Rodney Clifton stays with us, Professor Emeritus at the University of Manitoba and also an author at the Frontier Center for Public Policy. And uh, we've been discussing an article that appeared on their website recently titled Historical Parallels. Is Canada Becoming a Totalitarian State? When did we begin this long, slow march towards what Rod Dreher calls soft totalitarianism? We began it in the 1960s when I was a student at the university. It began then, but it was it was very mild at the beginning. But it's been tightening up ever since. So the people on the left have, in fact, uh, been winning this war of ideological words. So now that we've got to a position where we have to have safe spaces at university, where you can't talk about certain things, where you've got a cancel culture where people like myself who are talking at university are cancelled from uh, speaking and uh, the way they did it at the University of uh, Winnipeg was they th- the some members of the faculty club threatened to withdraw their membership if I spoke about the names of the schools their the residential schools and if they withdrew their membership the club wouldn't have enough money to actually survive so the person who asked me to speak resigned from his position and the club kept going but the general um, uh, meeting of the of the club uh, suggested that that they would have to close down if if I spoke now I was going to give people lots of time to ask questions or to debate or to engage in, 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 in discussions about that, about the names of the schools or whatever they wanted to talk about. It wasn't, uh, I didn't think it was that controversial. Obviously, things have ramped up. Do you think that the COVID pandemic has been used to accelerate this agenda? I think you're absolutely right on that. I think I've been just amazed at how compliant Canadians were for wearing masks, not going out, not going to work, not sending their kids to school. And I saw our neighbor, young lady with two children crying because they announced the day before on Mother's Day, the day before Mother's Day, that the kids weren't going to go back to school before the end of the school year. And she was, you know, working at home on her own job and then teaching her children, helping them get their education education at the same time so she was under a tremendous amount of stress so I've been I've been amazed at how compliant Canadians have been on this particular issue it really was an eye-opener for me given this level of compliance and I've seen some pretty disturbing polling about uh, the number of Canadians that would support vaccine passports or even worse the number of Canadians that would support people that are perceived to be spreading false quote-unquote information about COVID or vaccines should be sent to prison in the the face of, of this, is it now too late to stop this process? Oh, I hope not. I hope not. That's what. That's why we're, you know, Frontier Center and, and other think tanks are, are reacting against, uh, you know, this because we think that our country will be much worse off if we constrain free speech and debate about particular issues that are important. And of course, you know, how we deal with the with the, with the COVID issue is extremely important. Uh, and but there's a debate that could that has to be ha- held and the evidence that I've read on wearing masks for an example is that there's no scientific evidence supporting um, that that it stops people from getting the disease or prevents them from getting getting the disease now you can imagine you know little kids in school even if they're in school and their teacher and all the kids are wearing masks kids have to you know make 
eye contact with, and facial expressions are so important for them to learn what is socially acceptable or not. And if they can't see the face of the person, then that's really putting a, a difficulty in their way to becoming full-fledged citizens. It seems like things are going to get worse before they get better. I don't I know. I think so. We just, we, how do we fight back? I think slow and steady. Uh, we're publishing this book and, and promoting a book, uh, From Truth Comes Reconciliation, which is a critical assessment and I think a pretty fair one. And um, Conrad Black did uh, three articles from it in the National Post and said that it's, in his mind, pretty a fair account of it, in which um, we stand up and, and, and saying we're not going to be pushed into being compliant on uh, a certain set of beliefs that don't seem to be true. So the COVID issue, uh, the the graves, uh, the genocide issue with the Aboriginal schools, um, the climate change issue, uh, the strength of the government, and and whether we should, you know, be compliant with the government. And I think increasingly people are actually standing up and responding to that kind of threat. I really hope, I hope so. More do. Yeah. Rodney, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for a beautiful conversation. Rodney Clifton is an author with the Frontier Center for Public Policy and a professor emeritus of sociology of education at the University of Manitoba. All right. A couple of weeks ago, we told you about a study published in the journal Vaccines based on data from a Dutch Vaccine Adverse Events Registry. The study concluded that for three deaths prevented by COVID-19 vaccines, we have to accept two inflicted deaths by vaccination. On July 2nd, Vaccines retracted the peer-reviewed article after the angry resignations of at least six editors. Is any part of the study still valid? Why was it retracted? Our small-town family physician and lover of freedom, Dr. Patrick Phillips, is next. Back to the conversation on The Richard Serrett Show. News Talk, Saga, 960 AM. Hey, welcome back. There's been a lot of uh, talk recently about an ultimately retracted paper in the journal Vaccines that claimed COVID vaccines kill two people for every three people they save. Why was this peer-reviewed article retracted? What did it get wrong? And what, if anything, did it get right? Here to discuss is our small-town family physician and lover of freedom. He joins us every Monday, Dr. Patrick Phillips. Hey, Patrick, how are you? Good. How are you, Richard? Very well, thank you. So um, this caused quite a stir. This was uh, published, I think, back in June. This peer-reviewed article. It it was based on data from a, a, a Dutch registry for uh, adverse reactions to the vaccine, and the conclusion pretty startling. That uh, uh, and we talked about it on the air. That again, you would have to for every three people saved by a COVID vaccine, you you would have two inflicted deaths by the vaccine. That has now been retracted. What did they get wrong, mm-hmm. Patrick? Yeah, so, the, so this, this uh, paper like draw, drew a lot of attention. We spoke about it together. Um, uh, but basically what happened was uh, there was some criticism that came uh, uh, over this, this study. Uh, and the critique basically says that most of the data was based off a Dutch database that tracked adverse events, uh, but it but causality was not necessarily determined. So that's the main critique here. Um, and to me, it's, it sounds 
more like a technicality. I mean, uh, so when people re- uh, report adverse events following immunization, um, unless it's it's been in a randomized control study, yeah, it's true that you can't determine uh, with certainty that uh those deaths or adverse events were caused by the vaccine. Um, the only way to do that is to randomize two groups and then determine uh, what happens afterwards. So in these kind of databases where we're just tracking uh, what happens after the vaccine without a control arm, um, uh, it's you can't 100% determine causality. So there, there was actually another study um, uh, that of the VAERS database that, that showed about 85% just based on analysis uh, were likely po- uh, likely to possibly caused by, by the vaccine. So they basically went through and, and filtered out those ones that were highly unlikely. Um, uh, so that's, that's still 85% uh, uh, likelihood. So uh, in, in my mind, yeah, it's true. While it's true technically that you can't determine causality, uh, I think the conclusions of this study w- could have been reworded, uh, but essentially still stand um, because uh, it's likely that a, a large number of those uh, those deaths uh, were actually attributable to the vaccine period. So, so to summarize, the, the paper overestimated vaccine-related deaths by counting all reported post-vaccination deaths. Mm-hmm. Um, and the second idea is that it, it, it's because of under-reporting. Reported deaths tend to be um, lower, not, not on the higher end. Again, because of vaccine-related that's deaths true. tend to be under-reported. Yeah, so, yeah that's true. Yeah. So um, the, the six editors that walked away in anger, I guess we have no real way of knowing unless they come out and speak publicly. But when they supposedly resigned in anger, uh, which ultimately led to this paper being retracted, is that because they they were just they just thought that this was, you know, it was so against the narrative that, um, you know, they, they had to resign? Or is it because, um, you know, that they, they sincerely felt that the, the way this data was analyzed was faulty. Do we know? Uh, I think a few of them had made some public comments. Um, but I think, yeah, I think this, it, it drew a lot of heat, uh, I think, politically and publicly. Um, uh, but yeah, I mean, a, a few of them, I think, have made some comments that, uh, yeah, they, they had some problems with the way that the data was analyzed. Um, but... Uh, but I think ultimately, I, I think it was the uh, criticism and the and uh, uh, the political uh, heat around the, this article that I think uh, really um, probably caused the most uproar. Um, because I think most of it was was just based on technicality. Because they could have re- reworded, uh, like this is kind of their role, right? As editors of a, of a journal, you in and in the peer review process, if you have a critique of a. An, uh, of um, a paper, uh, you basically offer suggestions of saying, hey, all they would have to do is put likely uh, next to the conclusion, right? That it's likely that uh, these vaccines are causing uh, two deaths for every um, uh, for every life saved from the vaccine, right? So, um, 
Are you concerned about equality and fair treatment for African Americans? Do you believe in a future where our communities are safe from both crime and over-policing? President Biden's administration is making major decisions, and we need your voice to be heard. The proposed ban on menthol cigarettes is in its final stages of approval, and black and brown law enforcement executives have said it could have dire unintended consequences for African Americans. The clock is ticking. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414 and ask him to stop this proposed menthol rule. The ban on menthol could lead to an illicit market and increased crime in our communities. Call President Biden and demand that he halt the ban on menthol until there's a review of the investigative findings. Let's make sure that over-policing and racial profiling come to an end. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414. Tell him to stop targeting African Americans with a menthol ban. Time is running out. This message is paid for by Alliance for Fair and Equitable Policy. So I think uh, this is something that was entirely preventable. It's it's kind of more of a technicality, and I I don't think that the paper should have been retracted. Interesting. All right. right. Yeah. So uh, I want to ask you, this was published in the uh, the Sun newspaper over in the UK, and scientists have discovered, they say, that the flu vaccine could slash the risk of developing severe COVID by 60%. Uh, what do you what do you make of this? So yeah, this is an interesting study, basically where they did a, a case control study of uh, patients in, in several countries, um, and they saw that uh, death and hospitalization in people who uh, got the flu shot was uh, was lower uh, for COVID for COVID cases. So getting the flu shot protects you from severe outcomes in the flu. And I think this is something particularly interesting that's particularly interesting uh, when you look at uh, the epidemiology of the flu. And basically the flu disappeared through most of the world in an unheard of phenomenon that's that's um, never been seen before. So it's interesting that while the flu disappeared, this flu shot seemed to protect people from COVID. And I think the answer in this uh actually really lies in the PCR test. So the PCR test, um, it's known that uh, at the cycle thresholds they're used in Ontario, which is greater than 38, um, sometimes up to 45, and it fluctuates what they use. But at that level, um, only 3% are truly positive. So uh, that could be for a number of reasons. So one is, is that you had COVID before, but you were no longer infectious. That's one possibility, but also false positives can come from picking up other viruses that are somewhat similar, right? So other coronaviruses or um, or possibly other viruses entirely like influenza. So it's possible that some, some people uh, who tested positive for COVID and were actually sick uh, actually had the flu. Uh, but because they stopped testing for the flu, um, these cases may have been labeled uh, uh, covid and so that's I'm not saying flu, here, and that's why yeah. the flu vaccine would be effective. It's not treating, uh, it's not uh, lessening the symptoms of COVID. It's simply curing uh, or, or lessening the symptoms of the flu, which is what they had. That's possible. Yeah. So that's kind of my hypothesis with this. That's not proven at this point, but it would explain a lot when you consider the fact that they stopped testing for the flu this year. That is yeah. very. Peculiar. So you got to wonder which which ones are being which ones are being saved. I think it would be a great research question for sure. All right, uh, Patrick, thank you so much. We'll talk again next week, unless, of course, there's something major that breaks, and then we'll call on you again. We always appreciate your time. I know you're busy. Okay. All right. Thanks, Richard.
Dr. Patrick Phillips. You can follow him on Twitter at Dr. P underscore MD. All right. Hour two awaits news. Not in the news. The German word of the day and Toronto Sun's crime reporter, Brad Hunter. He's got a new book of cold cases. And wait till you find out or hear what happened to Rebel News reporter Drea Humphrey for simply asking the prime minister a simple question. Back with all of that in hour two. Stay with us. The views expressed in the following program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of Saga 960 AM or its management. Hey, Richard! Hello, yes. Can I help you? Richard! The Richard Serrett Show continues on News Talk Saga 960 AM. Hey, welcome back. Just a friendly reminder. Cases are not infections. Cases are not infections. All right, coming up a little bit later this hour, uh, Brad Hunter is a true crime uh, author and uh, the crime reporter for the Toronto Sun. He's been working that beat for 30 years with uh, the New York Post. Now, the as I say, the Toronto Sun, he's got a, a, a new collection of cold cases uh, called Cold-Blooded Murder, Shocking True Stories of Killers and Psychopaths. <laughs> he's in our, uh, he's the comedy relief. Just kidding. Huh? But he'll join us in our feature guest slot. Uh, and also this hour, we'll hear from Rebel News reporter Drea Humphrey. She does terrific work. She's out in British Columbia. The prime minister was out there on Thursday along with the premier and uh, was addressing a number of issues, including, of course, the, uh, the residential school and the... Uh, the unmarked graves, quote, end quote, that were discovered out there. And uh, Drea uh, Humphrey asked him a simple question having to do with the the rash of uh, church fires, Christian churches across the country, 10 alone in Alberta, I believe, on Canada Day. So she asked him, you know, why hasn't he uh, declared these arson attacks against Christian churches as a hate crime? And uh, she was basically grabbed and pushed aside by one of the trust fund brats uh, goons. And, uh, you know, shocking to see this um, this happening in this country, Uh, particularly, you know, we just heard from uh, Rodney Clifton, the professor of uh, professor emeritus at the University of Manitoba, who writes for this think tank called the Frontier Center for uh, Public Policy. Uh, talking about this article on uh, totalitarianism coming to Canada. And uh, and then we here have a, a perfect example, a prime minister who takes an actual question instead of a softball, a lob ball from his controlled uh, friends in the media. He gets an actual tough question. And what does he have uh, happen? His, uh, his security details grabs the reporter and basically shoves her aside. Absolutely disgraceful. Well, so we'll uh, we'll get to all of that this hour. News not in the news. The news. All right, we are back with the Lou Meister. Lou Skeezus, how are you, my friend? Fantastic, Richard. Always good to be with you. You know, you're talking about this character, uh, the article about fascism. I've been talking about that on your show for how many weeks? That's you know, true. saying that. You know, here's another example right out of the fascist playbook. Exactly, exactly. But, you know, it's interesting, though, when you see 
uh, in the article, they actually sort of place it side by side, all of these events that took place in Nazi Germany in the 1930s and what's happening in Canada. It's pretty stark. I mean, it's all there in black and white. You know, it's oh, oh, so you mean I have to start writing now? I can't just think and talk. No, I have that's to start writing. No, sir. You don't have to do that. You don't have to do any. I would be the last person to tell you to do anything. Oh, very good. Very good. So, so tell, you know, I, I, I agree. I agree with the analysis. Right. I agree with the thesis that, you know, we are moving down that track. And when I talk to my friends, you know, in the Jewish community, they're saying they don't like the action coming their way. The rise in anti-Semitism is palpable. Right. Right. And it's coming from the left and it's coming from young people on college campuses, which is very frightening. Um, the other thing is, you know, in Cuba, they're out in the streets now in Cuba. They're they're they've put they've had enough. Right. They've had like three generations of this nonsense. And, um, you know, the, the, the media here are trying to spin it as if, oh, this is simply a reaction to, you know, uh, lack of vaccines. No, this is 60 plus years of pent up anger and 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 uh, constant abuse by the uh, the Castro family. And we have uh, our own prime minister and uh, one of the, the leaders of the other uh, federal parties, Jagmeet Singh, who have, have been very, you know, just. Uh, like giddy school children uh, with their praise for the the former dictator of Cuba. It's disgraceful. Well, I couldn't agree with you more. And, you know, what you, we've seen as well, uh, not just protests in Havana, but uh, the U.S. Coast Guard reporting that there are more uh, they're picking up more people in rafts trying to get from Cuba to Florida uh, than they've seen in years. Right. And tragically, uh, drownings as well. So right. and, you know, you have a, a number of factors coming into play. Number one, uh, you know, Cuba imports 70 percent of the food to feed their population and the shelves are empty. I mean, right. isn't that right. a basic need? Right. Right. Like, you Here's know, your socialist utopia for all these people on the left. You know, you talk to people and they talk about how great their healthcare system is over there. Oh, yeah. Talk to the locals in Cuba. I mean, I, I've talked to people that have emigrated from Cuba uh, and kissed the ground when they got here. They'll tell you what a mess their healthcare system is. Right. And, you know, uh, there have been many voices from, you know, people that lived under former so uh, communist regimes, they'll tell you they're scared what they're seeing in our country as we move down this fascist track of, you know, uh, one thing after another, you know, changing the language that we use, you know, uh, um, illegal immigrants become irregular immigrants, uh, blackface becomes brownface. Right. Sexual assault becomes they experienced it differently and, you know, on and on and on. And that's just the beginning. Right. Right. You know, what's also interesting is when you see the Cubans out in the street and I wish them well, I, I really, you know, um, it's, a, it's a beautiful country and a beautiful people. But what do they do? They're 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 waving American flags, just like the protesters in Hong Kong. So, you know, the 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 symbol of freedom for people the world over is you know, the the, uh, the stars and stripes, supposedly this symbol of, of white supremacy and racism. Isn't it interesting how, uh, you know, oppressed people the world over look to the U.S. and their flag? Well, I mean, hey, listen, it could be a lot worse than what we're experiencing. And that's why, you know, when you voice your concerns, you're trying to let people know 
things don't happen all at once. Things fall apart slowly and then suddenly. You know, somebody made uh, a case and he said, you know, it didn't start with um, uh, gas chambers. That wasn't the first thing. It took years for the fascists in Germany to get to that conclusion, right? That's it. That's it. I know. And people say, oh, it could never happen here. It could never happen here. Oh, just wait. Just watch. You know, do nothing and you'll see what happens. Um, I just got a, a couple minutes here. I want to play this. This is a clip. Uh, wait a I found minute. It on- wait a minute. German word of the day. Oh, yes. Okay, let's do German that. German word of the day. Let's get that out of the way. All right, we'll get that mean? out of the way. Hey, hey, don't crowd it in. <laughs> you can't crowd this one in. This is I a super corrected. word. You're right. You're right. It's an appointment tune. Let's <laughs> let's devote some time to the German word of the day. Here it is. Uh, this is a 41-letter word. It's one of the longest words in the German language. And uh, can we have a little Bavarian music, please, Jody? Okay, here it is. Get ready for the the uh, Uber word of the day. Let's try that again. Can we hit it again. One more time. There you go. I probably could have done it better. Just saying. <laughs> so, any idea what this mesmerizing word means, Lou? Uh, no clue. No clue. Although I, you know, I, I appreciate the effort that you make when it comes to, <laughs> you know, pronouncing the German word of the day. Here, okay, we're gonna hear it one more time. Here we go. Betäubungsmittelverschreibungsverordnung. Yeah, what he said. <laughs> All right. What is, this is this lengthy word refers to a regulation requiring a prescription for an anesthetic. Oh, right. they actually Rolls have a right word for that. Wow, they have yeah. a word for that. Yeah, one, one word. word. <laughs> one word. <laughs> yes, there are multiple. Hey, the Germans are nothing if not efficient. Let's uh, let's have one more listen. Betäubungsmittelverschreibungsverordnung. There you go. Forty-one letters. All Bravo. right. Bravo. Uh, okay, I don't have time to uh, to play the clip from the doctors. We'll save that tomorrow. But I, I do want to ask you, uh, Joe Biden down in the U.S. is talking about unleashing a volunteer, an army of volunteers to go knocking on doors uh, to check on people to see and make sure that they've been vaccinated. They're even providing them with a script. This is what you should say to these poor idiots, that, that these anti-vaxxers. And uh, he's also telling them disregard if they have a no trespass or a no solicitor sign, rather a no soliciting sign on there. Ignore it. Just knock away and intrude and ask. I'm guessing that's going to come here to Ontario pretty soon. How would you welcome one of these volunteers who come to your house to ask you and check on your vaccination status? Okay. well, first of all, as a long time work from home uh, guy in the bunker. okay, I have one rule. I never answer the door unless somebody has made an appointment to come at a specific time. I'm not available to anybody just because they showed up. It's like you're in the political season, right? Uh, you know, the door's knocking, hi, you'd like to talk? No, I. so I don't answer the door. And I recommend that if you find yourself working from your home 
or even at home cooking dinner, you know, do you really think it's Mrs. McGillicuddy from up the block bringing some fresh baked <laughs> cookies? No. <laughs> unsolicited. There is no such person. What do you mean? Mrs. Mrs. McGillicuddy? McGillicuddy. <laughs> hey, she ain't bringing cookies either, Richards. Don't answer the door. Okay, let's say you're out doing a little gardening. You're trimming your geraniums you're, or you're something. You're already busy. I'm sorry. I don't live here. I'm just working here today. All right. right. No, that's that's the appropriate response. That's right. Do not give people access to yourself or your family. I like it. I like the cut of your jib, sir. All right. Until tomorrow. Or and the final thing is install gun ports so you get a cross field of fire if you need it. Okay. Back tomorrow. (laughs) Happy capitalism. He's Watch out, Mrs. McGillicuddy. Serpentine across his front lawn. Serpentine, serpentine. <laughs> All right. When we come back, Rebel News reporter Drea Humphrey. Stay with us. Welcome back to the Richard Serrett Show on News Talk Saga 960 AM. Well, this is uh, disturbing, uh, disappointing. Uh, on Thursday of last week, The trust fund brat, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, was in British Columbia and Rebel News reporter Drea Humphrey attempted to ask him a pretty legitimate question. Why hasn't he labeled the burning of Christian churches across Canada as a hate crime? Not only did Trudeau not answer the question, he won't believe what happened next. Drea Humphrey joins us now. Hey, Drea, how are you? I'm great. How are you? I'm well, thank you. So uh, sort of set the scene for us. Um, mm-hmm. This is uh, the prime minister. He's there with uh, the premier. Um, he's on the podium. He's making some uh, some some comments. And then he takes some questions, right? Well, I think it starts a little bit before that, actually. As soon as I came into the media pit, the head of security came up to me. And I kid you not, asked if I would be asking a hard question Uh, to which I said yes. Um, And then, you know, the announcements happened. And uh, when it was time for the journalist to, you know, go to the mic, I was one of the first ones there. I asked to be on the list. And, you know, people keep getting pushed ahead of me. (laughs) It was quite a monopoly. So once the announcement was done, which was about early child care um, uh, being around $10 a day. That's the promise anyways for under six in British Columbia. I just simply went beside Trudeau as he's walking and, you know, getting his high fives and asked him that question, just as you mentioned. So I I just had to uh, pick myself up off the floor and sit down again. They actually asked Mm -hmm. you whether you would be asking a hard question. The security detail head of it, came and asked me that. I kid you not. He did not ask me if I had a weapon. Um, I guess in some ways when it's Trudeau, I did, which is a difficult question. <laughs> right, right. And even though you were first to the microphone, they sort of disregarded you? I was one of the first. I, I'd say I was second or third. And it was it was kind of like a discussion back and forth. You, you go up to the two ladies there and they put you on the list. And, and every time I would ask it, oh, we've got, we've got lots on the list from the call-ins. But then I would see people who came after me, journalists who came after me and get on the list. Um, So, yeah, that's how that works. And so then you uh, you approached the prime minister with your microphone and you asked him the question, why haven't you labeled this rash of arson attacks against Christian churches 
as a hate crime, as to his credit, Jason Kenney, the premier in Alberta, did. Um, right. And what was the prime minister's response? Well, at first, he said something along the lines of the question period is over and kind of brushed me off. But it was actually he who broke the reasonable distance between us. I don't know if you caught that. And I actually put my hand up to stop because I wasn't sure what he was going to do with his hand. And uh, so he brushed my question off and posed for a selfie instead of talking about persecution of Christians in Canada. Meanwhile, one of uh, his security from the RCMP literally picks me up and tosses me to the side uh, to prevent me from continuing to ask him a question or asking him another question. I, you know, very little insane. shocks me. Very little shocks me with regards to what you know what what uh, the prime minister does these days. But 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 that actually did shock me. They they mm-hmm. they grabbed you and as you say picked you up and 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 pushed you aside or tossed you aside. Do we know yep. um, the, the identity of that uh, the, the member of that security team? Well, I know that we have counsel looking into things, so I have not been updated if we have the actual name yet. Uh, but it's something we're looking into. But, you know, I, if it's not him, it will be another, I think. So it's really important that uh, we get this out. This is Canada and stuff like that can't happen. I'm doing my job. Like I said, there's already a monopoly from trying to be able to formally ask the question so that it would be incredibly awkward for him to just completely brush it aside. Uh, I'm just simply asking a question when he's surrounded by many people asking for selfies and there's no issue with those conversations. So. Uh, were there any other, or did any other members of the media uh, come to your aid? Did they did they ask if you were okay? Did they did they express uh, anger or sympathy? Absolutely not. No, no, no such thing. And in fact, uh, Trudeau was also in Surrey the next day. I have a report coming up on that. But I was told when I went to go report there by the media liaison that the reason why I don't get granted the questions like the other journalists is that the other journalists don't respect me and neither do their bosses. That's actually, sorry, that's what he told our cameraman. We do have it on audio. Um, So (laughs) you have to respect the state media journalists, or sorry, earn their respect, be in the cool kids club in order to ask, uh, a question of such importance of our leader. Well, I, I hope that there are there is going to be uh, some legal consequences for this, uh, Andrea. And please keep us mm-hmm. uh, keep us uh, updated on this. It's absolutely unconscionable what they did to you. Are you concerned about equality and fair treatment for African Americans? Do you believe in a future where our communities are safe from both crime and overpolicing? President Biden's administration is making major decisions, and we need your voice to be heard. The proposed ban on menthol cigarettes is in its final stages of approval, and black and brown law enforcement executives have said it could have dire unintended consequences for African Americans. The clock is ticking. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414 and ask him to stop this proposed menthol rule. The ban on menthol could lead to an illicit market and increased crime in our communities. Call President Biden and demand that he halt the ban on menthol until there's a review of the investigative findings. Let's make sure that over-policing and racial profiling come to an end. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414. Tell him to stop targeting African-Americans with a menthol ban. Time is running out. 
This message is paid for by Alliance for Fair and Equitable Policy. Yes, we will do. And if you want more information, you can go with standwithdrea.com. We also have a petition there that you can sign if you are against this. And thank you for doing so. Thank you, Drea. Rebel News. All the best. All right. When we come back, our, uh, when it comes to our reading preferences, true crime remains the number one genre for nonfiction and for podcasts, actually. The Toronto Sun's crime reporter, Brad Hunter, has a brand new collection of cold-blooded murder cold cases. He joins me in three minutes. The Bull Session continues on The Richard Serrett Show. News Talk, Saga, 960 AM. All right, welcome back. We are talking murder for the next 15 or 20 minutes. And when the mob kills, it's never personal. It's strictly business. But with the murderers in cold-blooded murder, it's always personal. Brad Hunter is the Toronto Sun's crime reporter and the author of Cold-Blooded Murder, Shocking True Stories of Killers and Psychopaths. Brad, welcome. How are you? I'm doing pretty good. How are you doing, Richard? Very well. So true crime, especially cold cases, cold murder cases, continue to be the top genre in nonfiction. Podcasts are just exploding in this genre. What is it about murder that has so many of us absolutely enthralled? Well, I think part of it is uh, that, uh, you know, the these terrible things are happening to somebody else and you know in an increasingly paranoid society that well you know the good news is it didn't happen to me and it's also to an extent it's also uh, replaced uh, true crime has replaced things like horror movies because you know if you've gone to a, a you know tried gone to Netflix and tried to pick out a, a horror movie over the last uh, decade or so I mean real life is more horror than, than uh, what's on Netflix, and that is, you know, encompassed in uh, the true crime genre. You've been covering this beat for, what, three decades. Anything yeah. that, that, at this point in the game, for you, Brad, that shocks or disturbs you, or do you sort of tend to develop calluses? Well, I, th- I think, you know, anything involving, uh, anything involving kids, remain deeply, deeply troubling. So the calluses aren't there on that sort of uh, so that sort of thing. You know, when when you see criminals in a, a shootout at three o'clock in the morning in some abandoned parking lot, you know that doesn't really move my needle anymore. But anything anything with children or you know people who are truly innocent is still you know is still you know deeply disturbing and you, and and you feel that and you see cases periodically still that are you know so shocking that that you know you can't help but feel for uh, the victims and their families and so and it, the calluses haven't developed that much thank God how do you maintain a positive attitude in this world of darkness that you cover? Well, what I have to do is first, uh, first of all, all I, you know, I mean, I uh, also uh, covered the uh, the uh, attacks on New York on September 11th, and that was a big doll up of uh, of heartache on that day. And you know, at the time, I was, uh, you know, working for the New York Post, so so uh, I think that uh, that probably gave, helped give me some, you know, equilibrium once I, uh, once I got past it. But, you know, you have to, uh, you can't let it drive you insane because it, because it will, because there's so many terrible things happening, 
you know, in the world today, it's almost like being able to throw a dart uh, you know, at a board and, uh, you know, <laughs> there you are, something horrible has happened. So, you know, you have to put that aside, you know, cherish your children and uh, loved ones and uh, live your uh, best life away from that world. <laughs> so cold-blooded murder, shocking true stories of killers and psychopaths. Some of these are, are cold cases, unsolved. Some are not. Some are well-known, others others not. How did you decide which ones to include? Because obviously you've got countless to choose from. Yeah, it, uh, they were ones that I'd worked on in the past, almost, almost all of them. And I wanted a mix. I wanted some, you know, unsolved, some serial killers, some black widows, some insurance jobs, you know, and a number of other uh, aspects of, of crime that, that I would use. And uh, that's how I kind of uh, whittled them down. I mean, the uh, insurance jobs of black widows are always, <laughs> you know, big sellers. Right. All right. We're going to take a time out, come back, and we'll dive into uh, some of the stories, some of the cold cases and otherwise included in Cold-Blooded Murder, Shocking True Stories of Killers and Psychopaths. Brad Hunter is with us. Back with more in a moment. Don't go away. Just having a little chinwag on The Richard Serrett Show. News Talk, Saga, 960 AM. Brad Hunter is with us, crime reporter for the Toronto Sun and author of Cold-Blooded Murder, Shocking True Stories of Killers and Psychopaths. I want to go back to the early 70s because I remember a TV show, The Dating Game. This is so surreal, this story. Game show killer Rodney Alcala, how a, a serial killer ends up on The Dating Game as an eligible bachelor. Uh, that's that's America, Richard. That's America. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, Rodney Akala was uh, was a very twisted and troubled individual to the point that you know years later, every he ended up uh, at, the, at the same time as he's going about his merry way, uh, murdering uh, young women and and keeping a, a photographic record of, of these horrific crimes. Uh, I mean, police are still detectives are still trying to connect faces with names and missing persons, uh, you know, throughout the United States, mostly on the West Coast. But Alcala becomes a contestant on the dating game. And the women there, the woman who, you know, he, he was the winning contestant, believe it or not. But she said, you know, there was no way she was going on a date with that guy because he creeped her out. And he, and he creeped out the other contestants as well. Um, you know, it's just one of those odd sort of uh, American twists where we don't really see it here, where is that... That media uh, spotlight, uh, you know, combined with notoriety, uh, you know, of course, is. I mean, you know, you have the, the classics like the Long Island Lolita, you know, uh, Amy Fisher, and you know, other other uh, memorable stories like that. And these people, you know, I won't say they become folk heroes, but they also, you know, become part of the national conversation in a way that you don't really see in Canada or, or the UK for that matter. So he was actually in prison. They had caught him, but I guess there was a, a key witness that uh, didn't come forward. The parents sort of took her away to Mexico. They were they, they didn't want her to testify, so he ends up walking, right? That's how he ends up on the game show? 
husband, yeah, and the, he was on. He ended up on the game show. The uh, the woman who was at the time too terrified to testify. She years later she did, uh, but uh, and I mean many many years later. But uh, yeah, and he was sprung. He was on the game show, and then he uh, went to New York where he uh, murdered some more, and then came back to California and the West Coast of the United States and murdered again and again until he was you know, finally caught. And even even at that stage in the game, when the evidence is mounting, uh, you know, he was continuing, continually trying to, you know, wiggle his way out of the situation and, and uh, you know, not, not accepting reality. And, you know, and then there was that haircut he had that was, you know, maybe one of the funniest haircuts of all time. And, you know, he eventually went down. He's on, he's on death row in California. Now California hasn't executed anyone in 15 or 16 years, but, you know, they have that option for him. Begs the question, I guess, you know, who did the vetting for the contestants on that show? I'm sure that person no longer has a job, or at least I hope not. Well, I, I don't know, but a friend of mine, uh, a friend of mine's sister used to be uh, in charge of, uh, you know, rounding up contestants for reality TV shows. And, uh, and, and, you know, I mean, she was telling us at a bar once, she said, well, you ought to see the ones that don't get on. <laughs> you know? Right, right. So, you know, people murder for, for you know, sex, money, love. But then you have the, the people like Rodney Alcala, the, the serial killers and the psychopaths. What sets them apart? Obviously, they have psychopathic tendencies, but what is that? Is Are they born with that? After 30 years covering this, do you have any theories? Well, it's, it's different every time out, Richard, but I mean, you know, there are some, you know, there are some things that are telltale. I mean, you know, the troubling childhood, the domineering mother, the weak father, disarray on the home front, you know, which, you know, there's a billion kids who've uh, endured that, <laughs> you know, they're completely sane, but for some, obviously, you know, they, they, the, the trauma uh, runs very, very, very deeply, and there's no, you know, no structure and things like that. You know, most, most serial killers are white, although not all of them, as we've seen with uh, Samuel Little, the recent, you know, over the last, you know, four years or so stories about him, and he was a, a killer who just flew under the radar, and he's probably uh, America's most prolific uh, serial killer, uh, with, you know, more than a hundred uh, uh, victims, and in a way, not like the famed fabulous uh, uh, Henry Lee Lucas, who made up uh, a whole cloth, a uh, significant portion of uh, of his victims. You know, Samuel Little was the real deal, and but he just flew under the radar for years and years and years and years. All right, we'll take yeah. another quick timeout, Brad. Come back and uh, discuss sure. some other cases in cold-blooded sure. murder. Shocking true stories, killers, uh, and psychopaths. Brad Hunter, back with more in a moment. Let's rejoin the conversation on The Richard Serrett Show on News Talk Saga 960 AM. Mm-hmm. 
Toronto Sun crime reporter Brad Hunter stays with us, the author of Cold-Blooded Murder, Shocking True Stories of Killers and Psychopaths. How do we get a copy, Brad? Well, you can get it uh, through uh, Amazon, uh, Barnes & Noble, and uh, be available, I believe, sometime in the fall in uh, paperback form in Canada. Let's go back to December 1959 and the Walker family murders. This is incredible. In one, it, it remains unsolved, and two... There were almost 600 possible suspects considered. Tell me about it. It was one of the shocking uh, murders at the time. And it does signal a sort of uh, a change in America. And it come, came on the heels of the notorious uh, uh, Cutter family murders in Kansas, where the, I guess, the mother and father, and I think uh, three or four of the children were massacred by uh, two drifters. Uh, who were eventually caught and uh, hanged in Kansas in 1965, Perry Smith and Dick Hickok. Now, the Walker family uh, murders, again, a rural home, you know, same time sphere. Hickok and Smith were on the road in Florida at the time of the murders. And again, two parents, uh, two children uh, murdered, lots of confessions, uh, unsolved I, I I think in one of these particularly with uh, the Walker family with, uh, with new technology my guess would be they probably do know who the, the killer is and then the killers are and it might be Hickok and Smith and part of the reason would be that you know they're dead so you know nobody <laughs> nobody gets you're not going to put all your money into uh, solving a case where the people are dead I guess but but yeah, but again, it's one of those terrifying sort of American cases of out on the. This was in Florida, you know, that uh, farmhouse where that's attended and, and murdered. It's a, a very, very, very creepy uh, murder. And of course, the the Clutter family was the basis for Truman Capote's In Cold Blood. What is it about the Clutter family murders become perhaps one of the the most famous true crime novels of all time? Is it the particulars of the case, or is it is it all about the writing? Ah, well, the writing superb, <laughs> but it is it is also about the the particulars of the of the case. It, it elevated what had you know, previously been you know the fear of pulp novels and whatnot into high art, and it was also bringing home the truth, and a terrible truth it is that. I mean, you don't have to be uh, a denizen of the underworld or in that disreputable sort of world to have something very terrible happen to you. I mean, the Cutters were, you know, like an all-American sort of uh, sort of family, and uh, and you know, farm family wholesome, get out the pitcher of milk sort of thing, and they were massacred, and and you know, through nothing they did themselves, and I think that that resonates with people. Of the the fact is, there are very scary people out there. So one of the more grisly stories in the uh, the collection of cold-blooded murders is the Cleveland Torso Killer. And uh, the connection has been made between this serial killer, one of the most famous in American history, with the with the uh, the better-known Black Dahlia case in, in Hollywood. First of all, tell us about the Cleveland Torso Killer and then how that is connected to 
uh, the, the murder of Elizabeth Short, Black Dahlia. The uh, the Cleveland Torso Killer uh, was a was a homicidal maniac who preyed on the hobo jungles of uh, Cleveland during the Great Depression from about the mid 1930s on. I think 34 or 35 till about 38. Many of the victims were dismembered, and, and many of them were were never identified. They were bodies that were just found along the railway tracks and also in eastern Pennsylvania. They were horrific, horrific homicides. And the person in charge of the investigation was uh, Elliot Ness, who's famous as, you know, an FBI man and gangbuster and the untouchables and that sort of thing. But there was no, uh, they, they never actually got the Cleveland torso killer. But fast forward to Los Angeles in January 1947, when um, Elizabeth Short, who was also known as the Black Dahlia, was brutally kidnapped, tortured, murdered, dismembered, uh, and other unspeakable sort of things. And what they found was is that uh, it had a lot of the same, the case had a lot of the same uh, touchstones and marks, uh, earmarks that, uh, that the killer in Cleveland had done. And so, I mean, there's been nothing like either case in the United States. And many long-time uh, observers of both cases uh, believe that there, there's a connection. And, you know, the fact is that, you know, all these years later, both cases remain unsolved. Well, it's a real page turner and lovers of true crime and they are legion are going to eat this one up at the uh, the beach in the cottage. Cold-blooded murder, shocking true stories of killers and psychopaths. Once again, Brad, how do we get a copy? You can get it from Amazon and or you can uh, or you can uh, um, wait till the fall and uh, get a get a uh, paperback cover copy at your better bookstores. Fantastic. Brad, thank you so much for this. Terrific, Richard. Thanks a lot. Take care of yourself. My pleasure. Brad Hunter, Toronto Sun. All right. That's it for me. Thanks to Jody and Brandon and AJ. We'll do it all again tomorrow with the irascible but lovable Lou, the German word of the day, news not in the news, homeschooling advice from Ruth Gaskowski, and a very special guest. You want to mark this one down, Dr. Robert Malone, the inventor of the mRNA vaccine. That's uh, our feature guest tomorrow, Dr. Robert Malone. The the, uh, Brian Crombie Hour is next. I'll see you tomorrow at 4. Don't be late. Until then, I remain unbowed, unbent, unbroken. That's it. That's all. For more Richard Serrett Show, podcasts, blogs, and other stuff, go to saga960am.ca. Stop talking past each other and start talking with each other. We'll see you Tuesday afternoon at 4 on The Richard Serrett Show on News Talk, Saga 960am. Are you concerned about equality and fair treatment for African-Americans? Do you believe in a future where our communities are safe from both crime and over-policing? 
President Biden's administration is making major decisions and we need your voice to be heard. The proposed ban on menthol cigarettes is in its final stages of approval and black and brown law enforcement executives have said it could have dire unintended consequences for African-Americans. The clock is ticking. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414 and ask him to stop this proposed menthol rule. The ban on menthol could lead to an illicit market and increased crime in our communities. Call President Biden and demand that he halt the ban on menthol until there's a review of the investigative findings. Let's make sure that over-policing and racial profiling come to an end. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414. Tell him to stop targeting African-Americans with a menthol ban. Time is running out. This message is paid for by Alliance for Fair and Equitable Policy.